You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. Believe it or not, England have an ODI series against South Africa that starts tomorrow. We'll talk about that, some ICC awards, a massive week for the women's game, Shubman Gill, David Cameron and more. I'm Yazrana and with me today is Ben Gardner and Phil Walker. But first, let's hear from Mark Butcher on that South Africa-England series. But this is a slightly odd series. The SA20 is taking a nine-day gap for it. South Africa are struggling to qualify for the World Cup, but they have actually had some quite good results in ODIs in the last 12 months in series that don't actually count towards qualification. They've got a strong squad here. England are close to full strength. For England, there's a lot of pressure on Jason Roy up top. He's had a miserable time of it in T20 cricket for the last 12 months and in ODI cricket for for slightly longer than that. Phil Salt's there in the squad. Will Jacks isn't having a brilliant time in South Africa. Some people are saying this is last chance saloon for Roy. How do you see it? It was absolutely right to give him some leeway during the course of last summer to try and find his form. He's now obviously had the chance to sort of be out of the loop for a little bit, missed out on the World T20, um, and is now almost surprisingly sort of put back in um, at the top of the order for this series because um, England have only got, including these three matches against South Africa, obviously England have already qualified, but including these three games against South Africa, they've only got 13 ODIs between now and the tournament starting. So, um, you know, they're going to have to try and make their minds up about what what are going to be pivotal positions um, for the World Cup. Obviously, we still don't know Johnny Bairstow's, um, you know, what, what his prognosis is likely to be over the course of the summer. Uh, and so there, there could be a, a situation whereby England go into this World Cup with a completely new opening pairing. And so they'd want to make a decision about who they're going to be sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I guess England have the benefit of having won two World Cups recently. So they, they're very confident. And with, with the T20 World Cup, it was almost quite hard to read into what they were actually thinking six months out of the tournament because they changed so much at the last minute and they seemed very confident in doing that. And, and next up, I wanted to ask you about the middle order. There's potentially quite a cool 
shootout in place because you've got Owen Morgan and Ben Stokes are currently retired. I mean, we know Morgan definitely won't be the World Cup. Stokes might be. But you've got a shootout potentially between Harry Brook, Ben Duckett and Darren Milan for two spots. Brook's not played ODI cricket, but do you think that given how well he's gone in the other two formats, it actually won't take that much at all for him to demand a spot in the, in the starting 11? <laughs> no, I think he's in, um, quite honestly. Uh, you know the the other sort of the other players are sort of like the the all rounders if you like, but who will also comprise that sort of middle order to engine room area in, in Moen Alley and Liam Livingston. There's there's sort of like the jury's out on both, um, and, and Moen's returns have kind of been diminishing for for quite some time um, in the in that sort of engine room area in the in the, the one day international arena. Of course, you've got Sam Curran who is also more than handy with a bat as well. So you know there's a bit of a squash there in the middle. However, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a situation whereby England are so blessed with talent. Plus, as you rightly say, you know, they're staying in close contact with Ben Stokes as to see whether or not he fancies the tournament. And if he does, then he plays. So you, you say it might be, what, two from three. It could be like one from four. <laughs> so mm. there's, um, you know, and again, I don't think that England are going to panic about that um, whatsoever. I think they know, they know the personnel that are likely to be in the shake-up. And it will simply then be a question of, um, you know, the question of not only who's in the greatest form, but also who they think the best, you know, tournament players, the guys who will handle the uh, handle the pressure, will be as we get down into that, uh, into the run up to the to the tournament itself. So they're in a really good position. There's intrigue for for people like us talking about who they might go with, but I've got a funny feeling that they've already got a pretty good idea of of how it looks, um, and that the 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 squad is there for. The unforeseen, you know, somebody falling off a golf tee, for example. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, in the last what, two, three years, there have been so many weird things happening around the schedule. There have been a lot of injuries. So we've seen a lot of players come in and do really well. You mentioned Moeen, Livingston, Sam Curran. I mean, there is a chance that, you know, three genuine world superstars in white ball cricket and in, in T20 cricket, there's a chance that only one of them plays. So going back to last summer, England generally picked a top five Livingston at six, Moeen at seven, all the other way around, and then four bowlers. Do you think they'll retain that balance in, in nine months' time at the World Cup? Because obviously T20 cricket is very different to ODI cricket, and Livingston and Moeen are potentially quite similar players to, to have both there. And in the past, it was Butler who'd bat at six, and Butler looks to, to want to bat higher up in the order now that he's captain. Owen Morgan's template around around the, the, the 2019 win and the lead-up to that was to have to pick as many people to go as deep as you possibly can with the batting at 50-over cricket. Obviously, the risk of, of, being, of being dismissed in 50-over cricket is much higher than it is in the 20-over game. And so, therefore, he wanted as many people who were capable of being able to, to, to come out and make runs in the team as possible. And again, Josh Butler is going to find himself in a position where he has lots and lots of players, lots and lots of all-rounders who are, who are worth their place in the side. And so he will be able to stretch that batting lineup um, much further. I think the experiment with going with specialist batters in the summer was was a failure generally. Um, you know, I don't think they played particularly well. They were and, and because of that, they were unable to go as hard as they wanted. They did it, but then found themselves getting knocked over, you know, the, the, you know, with 10 overs, 13 overs to spare. Um, when Owen Morgan's team did that is because they were shooting for four hundreds. This team were getting knocked over for the for sort of mid two mid two hundreds because they just simply didn't have the depth to go as hard as they wanted to go. So there's going to be um, there's going to have to be some kind of tweaking in terms of either the strategy, which I think would be a mistake, 
or the personnel and the way that they they try and build the team up with a, with a lot more assure, um, insurance uh, as far as the length of the batting goes. It's finally gauging how much of a challenge it is for England in the next nine months. How much harder do you think it is to win a 50-over World Cup in India than it is compared to England's two previous global triumphs in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the capricious nature of some of the the surfaces sometimes between play, you know batting in the daytime batting under lights there are a lot of there are a lot of variables that go into it that are that are heightened by the uh, by the extra length of, of the game so i think it's going to be extremely tough but um england again have you know talent to spare and and are in a position whereby they'll be up there among the favorites no matter what so uh put it this way if they were to pull it off um as well as uh, as well as what they've done beforehand then, um, you know, didn't we have an argument before? It was an argument, a, a polite discussion before about where they rank in terms of the, you know, the, the greatest white ball teams ever. And you put it to bed forever if they, if they managed to, do, to to add this one to the, uh, to the trophy camp. Cheers to your time, Butch. Catch you next week after the England's Alpha Series. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This time tomorrow, Phil, we could be watching Joffre Archer running into Bolfringen for the first time in 21 months. How excited are you? Yeah, I am quite literally excited. Uh, I saw the game between the blue team and the light blue team in the South African stuff the other day. Uh, uh, he, he came up against Will Jacks. And although Will Jacks took him downtown a couple of times, it was nonetheless a deep thrill to see him. Uh, he looks fit. He looks happy. He looks as lithe as ever. He did a brilliant piece of fielding in an earlier game that I caught as well. And while he's not yet hitting 150 he's hitting 145 uh and he looks fit as a fiddle um it's been a long haul so to see him see him back and to see him tomorrow taking that new new ball again will be a a a deep joy he gave an interview to the press this morning he's speaking fulsomely about the ashes uh which is good to hear because he doesn't need that uh at the moment, he just wants to be back on the park. And obviously, he will continue to have all the white ball contracts available to him, whichever he fancies and can pick and choose. You forget just what an icon he is in, in, in white ball cricket, in 20-over cricket in particular. Uh, and yet, he's, he's, he's eyeing up the big thing as well um, and talking openly about that. So, look, it's, it's a joy. One note of caution, you just hope it, it doesn't break down again. But look, it's been, what as you said, what, 20 months Something like that. Yeah. Twenty-two months, I think. Look, they won't be they won't be allowing him to play this amount of cricket unless they're as sure as they can be that he'll that he'll be okay. And it's just a, a thrill to see him. I got a bit nervous when he said that he felt eighty percent fit. I was like, <laughs> "Come on, let's be a bit more cautious than that." Yeah, but I think but that meant just in terms of it, peak physical. It will be match fitness yeah. as well, and and you know, getting getting your chops back as well. So I, I don't think we need to be too concerned. Uh, but yeah, what a what a thrill! A lot, a lot of fast bowlers would be uh, would love to feel eighty percent of it. I think, uh, considering when you look at how strapped up they kind of constantly are and mm. always bowling through the pain. Well, well, one other thing on the on the the pace element of it, you know, obviously he you know he 
he did what he did to Steve Smith at Lords infamously, but then a week or two later he he knocked his pace down a little bit and was unplayable at maybe Old Trafford. I forget actually the venue, but Heading, was it he- Headingley? Was sorry, yeah. Headingley, and he bowled you know within himself, and yet was broadly unplayable there as well. He is so accurate and he has such control over over new balls and old, uh, and even if he may have lost that quarter of a yard. I don't think that necessarily has to matter in test cricket mm. necessarily. And also, we, we don't know that he has. And we don't like, know for, for sure. For, for pure, him to be that quick already is, is really Indeed, crazy. pure speculation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the nature of that, that injury, um, you know, with the, with the elbow in a, initially, obviously, then there was the stress fracture. And, but with, with the, the elbow, you don't know if that might take a tiny, tiny bit out of him. But there's not been any evidence of that in the games that we've seen so far. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any change in his action either. Maybe it's just worth remembering what he was, or not to temper expectations a little bit, just because of that that pace question. I think when he came into the side, that was the thing that was people were excited about was how quick was he going to be? And he's never been, I don't think, Mark Wood quick. Say he's always been just that tier below. Uh, but as as Phil says, like there is so much more to him. Like there's the the control of line. Like he can basically bowl any ball he bowls. It's like either sort of full enough to get some swing or short of a length to not be hittable or on that bouncer length that is also so hard to pick because his action barely changes between each type of ball because of how, you know, just of, of that unique action that he kind of has. Uh, that's what his strength is. I th- feel like the the bowler that he's close to in a way is, is Pat Cummins, who is that kind of relentlessly on that line. Yeah. Uh, the similar level of pace. You can also just see the similar in their careers. I mean, Pat Cummins came and decided in what, 20 2011 uh, as a as younger than Archer was when he came in but then had all that time out with injury and then when he did came back was just I guess that's where you hope the parallels will continue uh when he did come back he was uh he hasn't really gone out of the game again since he's come back as that kind of thing and that's what we hope and it would just be nice it almost feels like this could be the bookend to the first chapter of Archer's international career he had that first year when he had the world cup and the ashes and he was you know untouchable and brilliant and it was incredible to see and basically from that point onwards is just when the injury trouble started I mean, it's been 22 months but it's basically been since the start of 2020 that he's had something or other to be battling with and then this year you've got an Ashes series and a world cup that and he's eyeing up both of them and I guess just have to hope that this is the start of the next phase of of Joffre Archer and and like obviously you don't you don't want to get too excited because what, what however much of Joffre Archer we get to see will be you know thrilling and lovely and all that but there is that thing that is like, if this all goes well, this could be properly incredible. And this could be like nothing England have kind of had for however long it happened. But we don't want to get too excited. No, we don't. But let's do a little bit. <laughs> a quick, quick word for uh, Will McPherson, Will's uh, piece on the Telegraph rebuilding Joffre Archer, which I read this morning coming in. Uh, it's a really good piece. Uh, so if you want to know about... Uh, the process to getting him back to, to where he is and hopefully where he's now going to stay, then that's just a good one to read. And Will Jacks, I was surprised this morning that he's not actually in the England ODI squad for the South Africa series. Won't be long. He's having an absolutely outstanding SA20. He's a third leading run scorer. He's averaging just under 40, but he's striking over 200. And I know that conditions in T20 leagues vary dramatically from one country to another. So it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to nail the IPL or that he's going to be a gun ODI opener straight away. But he is having the kind of tournament that actually very few... Lots of people have good tournaments where they score lots of runs. But to be scoring at this rate and so much quicker than basically everyone else is 
quite astonishing actually yeah well you asked me to pick my moment of the week and i wanted to go for will jacks and i actually couldn't decide which will jacks moment to go for which kind of says something about how his uh how his tournament's going so i, I settled on two really there was one shot that he played off archer in that that game that Phil was talking about that was it, it was quite similar to that shot that Kylie played off ralph maybe the ball wasn't quite as uh quite quite short and maybe the stage wasn't quite the same <laughs> i'm not sure maybe uh I don't know if the cult, if it was the cauldron of uh, the MCG in front of ninety thousand fans, but it was it was that back of the length, high pace, and then played sort of back straight down the ground, and that's the kind of shot that really very few players in the world can kind of can 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 do basically, and and which isn't to say that you know Jax is yet exactly on the level of, of those players, but there will be players who have long careers who couldn't do that, and that is something that is worth noting. It's almost amazing how quickly he's risen up the uh in in the estimation of, of england fans and some pundits as well in that like you know at the start of the winter he was what one of many quite exciting players and then he, he only played two games in that pakistan series when lots of people were even sitting out and he, he, did, he did okay but still that was that that was all the time he got and now i think quite a lot of people have him as like right at the front of that race to be opening for england in in the world cup um and maybe that is slightly premature. There is still a long way to go. But I think the other thing that adds that, that works for him is the other thing I had in my moment of the week, which is his bowling. Uh, and he bowled a ball to, to Joss Butler, which is a decent person to bowl it to uh, for a couple of reasons, which sort of, uh, it, was a, it was a nice piece of bowling even before it bounced because it was uh, it drifted and then it dipped and Butler was beaten in, uh, beaten in the flight and then it turned loads through his gate and bowled him and almost turned that game uh, towards his side. And that will come into it quite a lot ahead of the uh, the World Cup, especially if Stokes continues to be unavailable because England will need to find some overs from somewhere. So I think he is a really attractive option at the top of the order. And yeah, this is a real statement tournament and even more so than other statement tournaments that we've seen. Maybe we need to temper expectations slightly, but there is loads to be very, very excited about. He That 60-odd in 20-something balls he, that Ben referenced, um, I watched all of that and he's so still in the shot you know, imperiously still uh there's an element of Bairstow to it actually he, he played one shot off Sam Curran where he just sort of short-armed him over mid-wicket uh you know again just a brilliantly dominant shot and you're seeing that in in his game and it's a it's an unfortunate comparison with with Jason Roy but this is the comparison that is glaringly obvious and being made no doubt as we speak it's a big three matches for Jason Roy coming up you know in these ODIs uh, but where where Roy is skittish and so much is going on in the shot as well when you see him play at the moment he's trying to overhit it he's trying to do funky things he's garbled in the in the mind clearly he's down in, on himself and you see through his body language contrast that to Jax and Jax just stands there and, and knows how good he is uh, this has been his his twelve months, you know, PCA Player of the Year across all the formats, a Test debut, a hundred in the hundred, and and now this as well. You know, he's he's a serious cricketer, and he's an incredibly versatile player as well. Just gives England options in in every format, actually. And yeah, so I, I can understand why people are so excited about him, even in ODI cricket when he's not actually played an ODI yet. Yeah, and he, he hasn't come from nowhere as well. I mean, him and Harry Brook in the twenty eighteen World Cup were the two players that everyone was sort of raving about saying these are the two to watch uh, and then obviously both had their struggles and then both have kind of uh, come come to prominence at the at the same time um, and at Surrey even with, with Phil talking about Roy 
when Jack was coming through the academy, the, the word was that he hit the ball harder than anyone since Roy. So that's always been the, the kind of comparison. Uh, and just on South Africa, Ben, they're at pretty much full strength. What do they realistically need from this series to put themselves in a strong position for World Cup qualification? Because as I alluded to earlier, they've actually got a pretty good record in ODIs in games that don't count towards World Cup qualification. Yeah, well, I guess some of it depends on if they do manage to play that series against the Netherlands and if they play all three games or just two of the games because the first was kind of abandoned partway through because of COVID. Uh, that, that one has gone down as a result. Has it? Okay, yeah. so, so they'll get two games there, which, you know, hopefully they win, but South Africa will know that um, they shouldn't be underestimating uh, the uh, the Netherlands after what happened in the World Cup. So I think they, they kind of, they, they need a series win at least and they probably, they might well need to win all three, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing their record with and inside and outside the Super League. So in the Super League, they've uh, won five and lost nine since, uh, and then since the World Cup outside of the Super League, they've won eight and lost two. Um, and that so, includes series at home to India and away to England. Yes. And uh, and they also beat Australia 3-0 in that time as well. Okay. So they, I, th- I think they are a good team and and yeah, because there's been, there's been quite, a, quite a lot of hype around some other young South Africa players mm. saying like we need to give them their chance. It's actually quite tough to see where they fit in. I mean, looking at what the lineup might be against England. I mean, Bavuma, De Kock, Van Edison, Marker and Miller, Klaassen as the top six. And you've also got Yanamin Milan, Rita Hendricks in there as well. Uh, I don't know. Tristan Stubbs, maybe. He's the one that's shown a bit more in both first class and list A cricket. And a lot of those players are better 50 over players than T20 players. Yeah. And and the, the bowling lineup is 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 really good as well. So I think that, and I guess there's there there's part of you that feels like, obviously you don't want to be going to the qualifier because there is an element of a lottery to it with, you know, pitches that can be a bit unpredictable and that sort of thing. But also if you do come through it, you can see how that could make a team stronger, especially with it being so close to the World Cup versus in 2019 when there was a, that, little bit more distance that actually if you come through a competition like that you'll be closer as a group you'll know so much more about yourselves it's it's world cup similar in terms of its tournament cricket i can almost see that they could come through that and be stronger for it and then maybe have a run for the semi-finals Mm. i don't know um some more england news this morning ben stokes has been named the icc men's test cricketer of the year for 2022 which is a bit of a surprise um, a surprise we like, I guess, but I think Bairstow's been robbed because I don't think Stokes gets quite as much credit for his captaincy if Bairstow isn't a freak for that five-week period in the summer. But is Bairstow um, a freak without Stokes' captaincy? That is, that is also true. That is also true. It, it didn't surprise me, for what it's worth. I mean, he's, he's, he's dominated the narrative, hasn't he? That, that is definitely true. Nat Siver, who's reappointed as England's vice-captain for the T20 World Cup, got the Rachel Hayho Flint Trophy for the Women's Cricketer of the Year. Uh, Barbara Zam won the Garfield Sobers Trophy for the Men's Cricketer of the Year. On the Siver, she averaged just under 60 with a strike rate over 90 in ODIs, scored 169 not out in the test against South Africa, and of course hit that amazing unbeaten 100 in the World Cup final, so richly deserved. The England Lions are in action at the moment in Sri Lanka. On the first day of that tour, Alex Lees scored 100 at better than a runner ball as the Lions scored 413 at 6.15 runs per over. Early this week, Lees talked to The Guardian about England's aggressive approach. He said, Everyone will try to play in that manner to some extent. The county system isn't just about individual domestic teams winning the trophies. It's about producing players for England and making England better. I think we will see a shift. Even if not a full team shift, at a bare minimum, you will see individuals in those teams making that shift if they have aspirations to play for England. The days of scoring 100 
had a strike rate of 40 are gone. He's really backed up that message there. I'm going to plough on with my moment of the week. This was just over a week ago because we've had a nine-day gap between pods. It's the Shubman-Gill double hundred. And going big on Shubman-Gill is by no means a hipster's pick. He's been tipped for the top since he's, what, 18 at that under-19 World Cup, Ben? Yeah, Bish- Ian Bishop in that World Cup said that I think maybe he's the most ready teenager he'd ever seen for the international stage. And that's a World Cup that had pretty sure in it, uh, Sheen Sharafridi. So yeah, he really stood out even in a strong field there. Yeah. And kind of because of how long his name's been around, you forget that he's only 23. So he's younger than Harry Brook, for example. He's younger than Will Jackson. He's played a lot of IPL cricket. He's done okay, but it's definitely not his strongest format. So this week he scored a double 100 and 100 in India's 3-0 win over New Zealand, who were the world number one side in ODI cricket. Uh, halfway through that series it became England and now it is India um, I watched most of the double hundred and this sounds like I'm going over the top but it was genuinely like watching Prime Coley no exaggeration the way he accelerated towards the end of the innings he hit Lockie Ferguson for three sixes in a row to go from 182 to 200 the next highest score was 34 he now averages 73 and strikes 109 in ODI cricket it's January the 26th he's already scored 567 ODI runs this year could challenge Sachin's record for 1,894 runs he got back in 1998. World Cup, yeah. You got a World Cup in India. Uh, He could play the Test Series against Australia. I mean, this is going to be the year of Shubman Gill. I mean, we've kind of been waiting for this for a long time. And he he just looks so good. He's shot up the rankings. And you'd expect on Indian pitches in particular. I mean, remember that Australia Series a couple of years ago? He didn't get 100, but he played some brilliant innings. He, He made a 91, I think it was at Brisbane. Yeah. Made a 91 as pure a 90-odd as you can see. Very little backlift. He had a game that's perfect for test cricket, but he obviously has the expansiveness to extend that into white ball cricket. Uh, There's a crispness to the way that he plays that evokes the greats of the past, the great stylists of the past. But there is also, combined with that, the, the flourish and the audacity that comes with growing up in the IPL era. So it's a, it's a lethal combination. Uh, he was always special, but then sometimes players look special and don't always necessarily get the runs, or they, or it happens at peculiar times, or they, you know, they they crash and burn a bit, or or they're slow burners or whatever. But in his case, he's what twenty three, twenty three, only recently turned twenty three, just turned twenty three. He's always been the one. You know, Privy Shaw has been exciting. Obviously, there are other players that are constantly percolating around, but Shubman Gill has always been the one, uh, the one that they are really excited about. And he is a generational player. There's no doubt about that. Honorary mentioned to Faf Duplessis for my moment of the week, by the way. He scored a first hundred. Yeah, in the SA20. And he... Hangs um, around, doesn't he? He was, he was batting with Reza Hendricks, who was... At, they were chasing 180. And at one point, Hendricks was 27 or 40. They were miles behind the rate. And Duplessis was hitting them well but then at one point basically hogs the strike and gets the required run rate from over 12s down to about eight by himself then obviously get, gets his 100 uh, I think he he struck at over 200 and the rest of his team together were striking at less than 100 anyway moving on Phil we're not, we not going to give a mention to Michael Bracewell in that game okay yeah actually uh, yeah so I mean because obviously we know Michael Bracewell who they dub him the beast and when we saw him play in England uh, seemed like that was almost like a bit ironic and maybe like they were like, taking the mickey a bit. And then every so often he just does something absolutely incredible that you could only think of like the very top cricketers doing. So he played 100 in a similar position against Ireland last year, which actually uh, was Notcom's ODI innings of the year. And then again, uh, New Zealand were basically dead and buried in the chase. And then he just 
just starts going ballistic basically and uh, brings it down to the last over. Eventually, they just fall short. But um, yeah, he's a he's a, he's a he's a funny cricketer, but uh, you know he just seems to be able to summon these moments of brilliance. Phil, what's your moment of the week? So. The West Indies uh, released their report into the men's team's performance at the 20, 2022 T20 World Cup last week. Uh, and it's not the kind of thing that normally I would be minded to read, but I clicked clicked open out of morbid fascination. Uh, and the first line was a like a, a kind of expansive comparison uh, citing Malcolm Gladwell, a Malcolm Gladwell quote from his book Outliers, uh, and then there was some extended metaphor about the aviation service, uh, and then it kind of even ascended to quotes from great Trinidadian calypso singers and so on. And this this report had me at that point, and it became increasingly compelling. Uh, Thirty three pages long, it was um, the the chapter or the whole section on Shimron Hetmeyer's absence from that squad particularly grabbed me. That kicked off on page 27 and ran over two pages. Uh, the story of Hetmeyer's absence from it is a sort of tragedy farce, really. Um, he missed his second flight out to Australia to join up with the squad. Uh, they were already there. He'd missed his first one due to a family emergency. Uh, but the second one he missed because the Burbies Bridge in Guyana had been retracted and he couldn't get to the airport in time. That was his version of events. Uh, the the people who have put this report together, uh, a, a chief judge, a Caribbean chief judge called Patrick Thompson, Brian Lara and Mickey Arthur. Uh, what a top three. <laughs> yeah. uh, in consultation with lots of other people around West Indies cricket, Jimmy Adams and so on and so I on. I think 12 Carlos of Brathway. the 15 uh, players who were in the World Cup squad were consulted. For the report as well. Indeed, yeah. The, the three who weren't, one of them was Shimron Hetmeyer. Anyway, the Hetmeyer story is a sort of lightning rod for the, 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 the sort of the structural disasters, the, the administrative mismanagement, and of course, the fundamental problem that they face, where, whereby you have gilded freelancers making lots of money who aren't able to be kept inside the system. And Shimron Hetmeyer has become this kind of archetype of this problem, I suppose. And uh, they go to town on him in this report. And there are elements of farce, as I say, attached to this story. It even kind of ends, though, with a sort of, with an olive branch, um, a rapprochement, if I think that's how you pronounce it. But anyway, that was the word that they use. It's full of these sort of flights, anyway. Uh, comparing him to Dennis Rodman, right? Chicago Bulls' Dennis Rodman, you know, cross-dressing, orgy-loving Dennis, you know, went out with Madonna and Kim Jong-un's best mate and all the rest of it. Uh, comparing him to him and the line being, you know, requires sensitive man management and so on and so on and so on. So so it's a, it's a fascinatingly wild and revealing report. I read it cover to cover and wrote about it this week. Uh but within it, of course, there is that fundamental message that, as they say on page two or page three, uh, without some meeting of in the middle ground between administrators and players, for whom distrust between the two is, is worse than it's ever been, without some meeting in the middle, West Indies cricket as an entity will cease to exist. And that's a direct quote from this, this thing. So 
this is an important document, uh, whether it's a last dying wheeze or, or, or not, at least they've summoned the breath to make it, right? And uh, it needs to be read and read again and it needs to it needs to leave its mark on the individuals that are trying to hold this thing together. Uh, and it needs to leave a mark on the players for whom uh, there is an immense amount of responsibility on their shoulders because the talent pool is shallow and behind the likes of Hetmeyer and Andre Russell and Sonny on the right, I know those two are in the, you know, the August of their careers, but they are still indicative of this, this schism between, between board and player without some coming together, without some recognition that there is something bigger at play uh, than simply the size of your wallet. Um, without that, the game is on its, is on its mm-hmm. knees. But equally, you know, uh, in, in the piece you wrote the other day, you quote Ian Bishop and Michael Holding, who don't blame the players for chasing the money if they've got the opportunity there. Well, I guess this is the point, though. This goes right to it. So Hetmeyer, Nicholas Poran, Evan Lewis... These players who have made more of their name elsewhere have nonetheless come through a system, however flaky and however impoverished it is. They've nonetheless come through a system. Without, without that Caribbean system in, in place, they don't get to where they are. And so you're right what you say about Bishop and Holding, but Bishop's point was he hopes that there is an epiphany at one point, sometime down the line, with Hetmeyer, who is a very likeable cricketer a likable bloke I've interviewed him myself he's a lovely lad uh, but he's caught in the eye of the storm here and what Bishop is quote quoting Bishop he's saying he hopes that there is an epiphany somewhere down the line that he's made a certain amount of money and that he can hope to give something back to West Indies cricket this is not the quote but this is West Indies cricket still did make him without West Indies cricket you wouldn't have a Shimron Hetmeyer so it's a very very delicate one the the overarching point of course is that there's not enough money swilling around in West Indies cricket. Uh, how the game, on a macro level, finds that money and is prepared to free up that money and distribute that money more fairly across the board is, of course, the, the question of the day. It's the question of the, of the era. We, I think we had a question about this, actually, on Twitter. Um, are there numbers? Are there actual you know, cold hard numbers out there regarding the ICC's distribution of wealth. Well, we've spoken about this off the off show. We are trying to get there, and I imagine many other outlets are trying to get there as well. But it's a very difficult thing to reveal. Uh, but that is the that is the question of the of the decade. Is that money there to replenish areas of the game that desperately need it? Because without that money, they struggle to survive. That is the question of the day. Trust us, we are trying to get those answers. Um, uh, but that's what's at stake, right? And, you know, I, I sort of signed off that thing that I wrote for, for you lot on the website. And it's probably came across as a bit schmaltzy, but I do genuinely mean it, right? This is a small world, cricket. It's an expanding world, sure, but it's still a small world. And if you lose one, then you lose the, you lose the lot. You can't have a game that is contracting. You can't have a game where so much of its identity is wrapped up in, in, in what rep- is represented by West Indian cricket. So much of its history and prestige and so much of its colour and identity is wrapped up in that. You can't just lose that with a shrug of the shoulders and think that the game is still going to stand and the game is going to matter as much because it's not. Yeah, but I, th- I think though, I, I can see a future of the game 
that has a flourishing Caribbean cricket scene without there being a flourishing West Indies cricket team. And I, that, that would be a sad thing, but I can see it happening. I think you're already sort of starting to see the seeds of that being sown. I mean, in so you've got in the ILT20, you've got teams owned by uh, IPL uh, owners. You've got the same in the SA20. That starts in the Caribbean Premier League with the Trinbago Knight Riders. And I wonder if what those owners are kind of seeing a few years down the line is almost you have the talent centres in those places and the pathways are actually... IPL team owned you have the you have the Knight Riders Academy in Trinidad and Tobago rather than having a uh, you know a Trinidad and Tobago state team and that's how it's funneled through and they're the people who are searching out because I think the, the people who are on the IPL they're they're not stupid they understand that they need global talent and they need those those stories and those characters to make the league be a flourishing thing so they won't want cricket in the Caribbean to die but I don't think they hugely mind if the West Indies cricket team dies and I can see how no, they probably don't you're probably right they probably don't care they don't have much of a stake in in the soul of the game they don't have much of a stake in 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 the West Indies as an as a combined regional entity in if anything it runs counter to what they're trying to achieve themselves of course but what price the people what price the people who are still the the central point of this whole this whole experiment right the game exists for the people or it should exist for the people uh and nobody's going to convince me that uh siloed and and fragmented pockets of a Car- of the caribbean that might still be producing the odd cricketer for the benefit of uh an ipl franchise or whatever it may be is going to un- unite and unify a, a a culture it's not it's going to it's just going to increasingly fragment that culture and in the end you'll have just an irrelevance and, and it, it will amount it will just wither away without that 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 cooperative without that collective reason to continue to keep going and it might benefit the odd cricketer who who breaks through nonetheless and will be one of two or three local locally sourced cricketers alongside the kind of traveling circus of of that franchise here with players eventually playing 12 months of the year for them anyway. But no one's going to convince me that people are going to turn out for that. No one's going to convince me that people are going to care about that. The West Indies remains an, an, an integral part of the soul of, of, of cricket, of world cricket. And that's what's at stake for me. You mentioned the report was, was wild. It was so wild that you can't right. find two thirds of it. So yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was 33 pages long. Trust me, I read it all. It's now, having clicked on the same link that I clicked on last week, it's now 12 pages long, and the stuff on Shimron has gone, mm. vanished. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um. So people just think I'm probably just speaking bullshit on <laughs> this article, but honestly, it was out there once upon a time. <laughs> it's been heavily redacted. I would imagine that Shimron's representatives may have, have had, mm. a, had a word in... In the shell, like of the WICB, I mean, or what? representatives of the of the Burbies Bridge, who uh, <laughs> his name's been dragged through. Also, them, yeah, so the, yeah. yeah, indeed, and that was key to the whole thing. Yeah, um, I mean, the twelve pages that are still up there are still very much worth a read. And and <laughs> just to reiterate Phil's point about who's produced this, High Court Judge Mickey Arthur, Brian Lara, who wouldn't want to read that? What a top three. Um, yeah, I feel like they're just missing Maria Erasmus to just complete <laughs> complete that vibe. Um, we recently launched our limited edition. Pure wool cricket sweaters. The sweater was designed by British specialists Crystal Knitwear, who are the official supplier of wool cricket sweaters for all MCC teams and the official Lord's online shop. Only limited stock is available, so do not miss out on the perfect 
gift for any cricketer this year. You can get that at wisdom.com forward slash shop. Some more news from the past seven days. The ICC have proposed a six-team T20 event for the Olympics for both the men's and women's games uh, from 2028. Why only six teams? I hear you ask. Basically because the IOC need to do a bit of cost-cutting and they want to um, trim down the, the number of athletes who participate in the Olympics. So that's why it's only six teams and it can't be the T10 because uh, they need to have something that's established at a world level. So it has to be T20 cricket, basically. Anyway, much bigger news and much more exciting news from India this week. The five women's Premier League teams, which is the name for what we refer to as the women's IPL before, have been sold for a whopping 573 million US dollars. Five teams. Um, Beth Barrett Wild, who Phil mentioned on last week's show, I think she's ahead of the 100 women's competition. She said the women's sport landscape has well and truly shifted. Forget momentum. This is stratospheric change. Yeah, just to kind of get your head around that figure. So the the team that went for the most money went for more money than the men's team that went for the most money in 2008 when the men's IPL started. So the amount of money swirling around the women's competition is is truly enormous. Um, so, I mean, this is going to be an absolute game changer uh, for, for the players because this, I guess, gives some kind of indication that there's going to be serious money coming towards them unlike what we're seeing in, in the other existing competitions at it the It really moment. puts the 100 into perspective, doesn't it? You know, and, and the relative, you know, pennies that are offered to, to the best players in the world in that tournament. Um, and as I said the other week, you know, Beth Barrett-Wild, who works for the ECB, is, is not unaware of that discrepancy. Heather Knight as well, was the figurehead of English cricket, English women's cricket, not unaware of that discrepancy, right? So, so the 100 will have to address this uh, if it hopes to maintain any kind of high-end quality, because while you can probably bank on the loyalty of English players, you're, you're going to be struggling to persuade great Indian, Australian, New Zealand players, etc., uh, to come over here to play um, when it's a, it's an absolute drop in the ocean compared to what's now going to be hoovered up in India. Yeah, I was, I was struck by it because you wrote the piece in the last magazine magazine full about the, the business of women's cricket and the burgeoning sort of opportunities that are available which is i guess timely considering this um well, i'm a good journalist mate yeah well yeah and and, and kate, kate cross she stopped short of uh, calling for equal pay while also making what i felt was a pretty good argument for it which is that the the men's hundred couldn't exist and wouldn't have been as accepted as it is even though there's still obviously debate around it were it not for the good story of the women's hundred and so if you have a competition that can't exist... It's not exist, just a story. It's a, exactly. It actually is a product. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, if you, but if you have... If, if, if this thing couldn't exist without the women's competition, then how can you justify, say, say that, oh, we, we can't afford to pay you, but it can't exist without you? That That is a discrepancy to me that is, has not been correct. And they basically just got away with it because they've they felt like they can. Um, you do get people who, on the subject of equal pay and that sort of thing, you say that, oh, it's it's tokenism the, the women's game can't generate that revenue and this this women's premier league deal is just a a complete knockdown answer to that objection i mean the, these this isn't these aren't cricket boards saying this is worth that much that you can debate with these are these are businesses people yeah. whose job it is to estimate what these things are worth exactly and they think it's worth uh they think they'll get a return on this investment which is you know, say more than half a billion us dollars when you add in the uh the, the the tv rights deal to that you get even closer to that to that billion dollar figure um I still am wary at how there aren't figures yet for what 
players will get in this competition. And e- even in the men's IPL, uh, compared to the overall value of that, you could say that the the, the best men's players or, or all the players in that aren't uh, compensated sort of adequately compared to that. So I do still worry that you might get uh, the BCI getting loads of money and that not going to women's players. And also that how does that money filter to women's cricket in the rest of the world game? In some ways, it's it's hard to see that. And then you also have the question of this to an even greater extent than in men's cricket is now the biggest thing in women's cricket. And you're going to have Pakistan's players excluded from it, presumably. Uh, you know, you see, we've seen this week Aisha Naseem in the uh, in the Australia series kind of announce herself, uh, play, she's 18 years old, sort of playing this incredible kind of fast hand whip pull shots. She looks absolutely great. And this is a platform that she's not going to get. And you can see that even more so than in men's cricket, that this could be something that, that harms the Pakistan team, I guess. So there are a few notes of caution, while overall it shows the immense value and potential of the women's game. And, it, and it's not just potential, it's value right now. Uh, so it's mostly exciting, but there are just a few things to to keep an eye on in terms of how it develops and uh, and builds, I guess. Mm. And, and also, we've talked about it quite a lot in the last couple of months, but uh, all the chat around private investment in the 100, this just shows that 100 is going to fall behind very, very quickly from other leagues just in terms of money that's available. And that's been true of the men's game. It's now true of the women's game. Ben, there's been far too much T20 cricket over the last week or so for everyone to follow adequately. Uh, but you've been doing the Lord's work and following it so no one else has to. Uh, you've got, and I'm going to be strict on this, you've got two minutes to round up everything from the world of franchise cricket from the last week. Your right, two hold minutes. On. Hold on, I'm going to time it. Go. So a lot of this is from the BBL. So you had Brisbane Heat collapsing from uh, 102 for four, needing 19 or four overs. Uh, Tim David somehow defending 10 runs off the last over, which I think gives you a, a sense of the quality of that competition. Uh, Steve Smith was on for three tons in a row. I think he was 66 off 32 and then missed a knee-high full toss to be at LBW, which is funny considering what Steve Smith normally does those kind of uh, those kind of liveries. Another BBL bowler, David Moody, uh, bowled one legal ball, then uh, two massive full tosses and got yanked from the attack with an economy of 48, I think, which is impressive. Uh, in the ILT20, you had, a, you had a, a player do a very good stop on the rope uh, so the ball just stayed in play and the ball boy, thinking he's being kind and useful, stepped in to pick up the ball and uh, chucked to the player. And I was like, hang on, what happens here? That's, That's a, brilliant. Yeah, somebody's a, uh, you have uh, Iftamania is my is my favourite. Um, Iftikar Ahmed. Hit, I don't think you discussed this in our show. I think it was just after. He made an incredible 45 ball 100 from number six with Shakib Al-Hassan. So they were 40 for four. And then he comes in and takes him to what, 220 odd. Minute. Uh, he's played a few other exceptional innings in the BPL. Um, and has become sort of like a bit of a meme. There's like a great graphic that someone's put of him with it's sort of like sunglasses, almost like a like 70s style uh, shading. It looks really, really good. And Ifty Manuel is what's going wild there. And then Marco Janssen played, you said the Fafti Basi and he was brilliant. This was an incredible sort of heist against Rashid Khan, Gigito Rabada and Joffre Archer. Notably, Archer was the bowl he chose to play out in that and taking down the other two. Um, and they needed what twelves, and he and he and he takes them down, and, and doesn't quite finish it, but takes them to the line in style. Fantastic, with thirty odd seconds to spare as well. Twenty three um, seconds to go. Well played, Gardner. Fantastic. Gardner. More of that in the future. The <laughs> one thing that Ben purposely did not mention because it deserves um, more attention, really. Uh, so Alex Hales created history by becoming the first player to score hundred in the Isle T Twenty, and then just as he gets to his hundred, he takes off his helmet. Uh, turns to the crowd and the camera also pans to the crowd where it shows David Cameron, the former UK Prime Minister, not the former Cricket West Indies chair, 
Um, Dave Cameron's <laughs> clapping by himself, which I think is the perfect image to represent the ILT20. <laughs> David Cameron by himself clapping Alex Hales as he reaches uh, his 100. Well, we've, um, we've been asking who is this tournament for? Who does it serve? <laughs> and it's, it's, it serves David Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> we posted a photo of this on Instagram and someone replied, uh, quite a few replies saying like, why are you doing this? Well, it, it's clearly quite funny that David Cameron is applauding Alex Hales. And someone... It's ca- just the perfect combination. Yeah. You know, weird, p- pointless tournament. Alex Hales, <laughs> Dubai, and a disgraced former British Prime Minister. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's all perfect. Yeah. It's, like, it's like how Steve Bruce would always manage to get sacked just before some sort of major cricket event. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be in the stand for that. So. If, if Cold War Steve... Um, <laughs> ever ventured into cricket that would be his, his tableau yeah, right absolutely on Steve Smith some people got very angry that he got a county deal for Sussex he's set to play three games for them before the Ashes gets underway uh, very briefly Phil it's fine isn't it Stoke said it was fine so it's fine. it's fine of course it's fine cool. uh, the, the only thing I'd say in what Stoke said is that he I, said did, that I wasn't aware he'd made any comment it, by the way he, he said he felt it wouldn't make a difference to the Ashes at all and I think I mean it's fine to think that it's fine, but also think that this probably, this might well help Steve Smith. I mean, I'll bat- do me a favour. 2019, was it 2019? Yeah, yeah, 2019, he made two hundreds in the first game. Yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't matter whether he's played six six knocks for at Hove or not, <laughs> well, two months before it. Sure, I mean, St- I'll St- do me a favour, Steve Gardner. Smith <laughs> clearly thinks it will help him, right? And he's and he's not he's not silly. It's it makes but it's, scant we all, difference. We all agree that it's fine. Yes, scant yes, it's fine if yeah, any. Yeah, yeah. And also, he might have a have a Pajara moment from a year or two ago and not be able to lay a bat on it. That that um, that's the ideal situation, I think. Yeah, and I think it is fair though to say that, especially given how one sided the series are in Australia, that England should get a little bit more than they do get in terms of preparation. But at that's, the, at the but that's for podcasting for the, two years' time. Bang on ten eleven. They played a game against Australia A. They had another good game as well, another three-day game, a proper 11-a-side game. Uh, and so they were ready for that series, for sure. That, is, that should be written into every, every Ashes series from here on in, home and away for both teams. Mutually beneficial. Definitely. I think, I think ahead of the 2017-18 Ashes, uh, they played basically a group of 19-year-olds and on an incredibly flat pitch. I think Cook and Carberry were put on 350 for the first wicket. And at that point, you think like, this is it, England. Uh, sorry, sorry, 2013, 14 must have been. Yeah, and at that point, you think like, right, it's three in the summer. It's going to be five in the way from home. This is going to be great. And yeah, that I think is shows what the, what the preparation is generally like. I guess. Exactly. Other news from the last week: Hashi Mamla announces retirement from all professional cricket this week. Um, which, just on a personal level, bit of a blow that we won't be able to see him live at the Oval next summer. He'd been retired from international cricket for a few years. Ireland are set to play a one-off test against Bangladesh later this year, um, which is which is great for Ireland. It's been uh, nearly four years since they last played a test match and uh, the Royal Pindi pitch has had its demerit point rescinded by the ICC following an appeal from the PCB. I think we all agree uh, that's that's not good because that pitch was awful. Um, England have qualified for the Under-19 World Cup semi-finals. They face Australia. Uh, Ellie Anderson took 5 for 12 for England in their last Super 6 game to ensure that they qualify top of that group. Bangladesh, who we talked about last week, I think, narrowly missed out on a semi-final spot on net run rate after and losing Rwanda to South Africa. And Rwanda beat the West Indies. Mm. Just yeah. let that one sink in. 
The Women's T20 World Cup starts in a couple of weeks. We're going to do a proper preview of it next week. Uh, there are some warm-up matches happening at the moment. Australia playing Pakistan. There's a tri-series between South Africa, West Indies and India. And kind of to follow the theme of West Indies not doing great at the moment, West Indies were, were appalling yesterday, actually, in their game against South Africa. South Africa won by 10 wickets, chasing down 90-odd comfortably. And West Indies actually did pretty well to get 90. They were 6-2 for two at the end of the power play, yeah. which is not great. Yeah, a run and over. On to some questions from the listeners. Um, James asks, Yaz, why did you cut your flowing locks off? Um, well, firstly, I had... I was, I was walking into work behind you this morning and, and the evidence is quite quite marked now. Number one, I had longer hair to cover up the bald spot here. This is for the YouTube audience. Whilst having the top knot, uh, basically, I was losing the hair from the front. So I was like, oh God, this looks awful now. So I just had to go. Embracing reality. Um, you're, de- you're developing a nice little hair island there at the front, aren't you? Not yet. It's getting very, there. very slowly. It's getting very, there. very slowly. It's, it's still archipelago, I think. Um, you, I mean, you, you both are very well blessed in terms of hair retention, and I'd say it happens very slowly. Uh, James also asks, uh, "What are your thoughts on man canning in club cricket um, now that it's legal? Well, it always has been legal. Uh, I can see it leading to violence, personally. Um, there was a story in the Telegraph this week that." Man canning might be banned in club cricket this summer. Uh, obviously, it's totally within the laws of the game. And I'm pro man We talked a lot about this in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think it's absolutely fine, totally within your right to do it. However, I don't. I wouldn't go as far as banning it from club cricket. But I think anyone who's played in a club game the last few years and had one of these incidents come up, and you see that people who don't live on cricket Twitter. The, the conversation hasn't actually advanced that much. And I think. Have, it, have you seen it happen live? Yeah. I've never seen it. I've seen it once and it didn't go well. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I, so I, I just think it will lead to conflict. I would never do it, even though I think a professional should do it, basically. Yeah. I, I, would, I would give a warning and say, like, look, come on. Oh, to do it without a warning, mm. when you're paying a tenner for a Saturday <laughs> yeah, afternoon, exactly. knock about yeah. anyway. And you've got problems at home and, and this, that and the other. And then someone's man you without a warning. That is, that is a low blow. No uh, question. That yeah, is I mean, I, I don't even think it's a low blow, personally. It but it it, in just terms of avoiding conflict, you should be aware of how it's going to be taken by the opposition. Very, very few teams will take it well, it, it, I think. It is morally murky. On a Saturday afternoon, Division 5 of, of your local league, to man somebody... Without a warning, that is morally murky. Why is it morally murky? Because the context has to be taken into consideration. This is not professional cricket. This is not even Premier League cricket. This is your average bog standard Saturday afternoon cricket. The cricket that you play, the cricket that I play. Nobody's there to get rich. No one's there to get famous. No one's there to to win at all costs. You're there to have the wind blow through your face, to be amongst your mates and to have a drink afterwards and hopefully to have a good day and hopefully to go relatively well. That has to be the context. Mm. Mancadding in professional cricket, if somebody's taking the piss, fine, sure. I can't even be bothered to go down that obvious road for me. But in club cricket, I think it's a different story. One thing that could happen though here is that when you're seeing it more and more in professional cricket, it could end up normalising it in club in club cricket and therefore 
detoxifying it a bit, taking some of the sting out of it because you are seeing it happening more and more elsewhere. I don't think we're at that point yet. And no, we're I said not, earlier, but we like, might end up yeah, I, that, I, yeah, and I would be fine with that. I just think that last summer was one of the most enjoyable summers of playing cricket I had. One of the big reasons for that was how well the teams generally got on as just a very pleasant environment in our league. I, I, and, and, I, and I do just think that you're, you're creating the opportunity for a needling environment. Like, I, I, like that, is, that is true. Like whether or not you think Mancad's uh, are good or bad. Yeah. That is that is true. Right. And a lot of people who don't live on cricket Twitter still think they are bad. Yeah. Do, so, do, do what, you think what this needs though is is for I, it definitely needs some sort of leadership from the people who run the various club cricket leagues and that sort of thing. But it depends what form that leadership should take. Like banning mancads I, does feel just like a, a concession to you know the, to 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 kind of the the worst sort of people who would get really angry and you know. But both ways, you're taking it too seriously in some ways. Everything's does, a culture war. Yeah. Does it does it not need them to to sort of to say, look, this is the this is the MCC's position. This is the position of the people who run the game. Uh, it is a risk you take if you leave your ground, and any bad behaviour that stems from it will be viewed very, very sort of in a in a very dim light when it comes to you know various rules and whatever. Yeah. In, in I wouldn't mind that if if the league came out at the start of the season and said, this is what the laws say we're going to treat it, we're going to follow the lead of professional cricket. I think that's fine. Um, it needs some sort of leadership, basically. But without yeah. that, yes, I, I would... I would. To us, even with that, I probably wouldn't do it. You've also got to bear in mind as well, 99% of cricket matches played over, over weekends of, across an English summer are umpired by your own team, <laughs> right? So already we have this mad power vacuum and authority vacuum just in the very nature of it. Mm. Paid umpires are rare in in any recreational cricket. So normally it's the, the opener who's already got out. I put my hand up, and then I'm 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 umpiring after fifteen overs. So so to put that person into that position as well, mm. I just don't see the evidence of people trying to pull a fast one as a non-striking batsman. I don't see that in the club cricket that I've played, and I play pretty rough and ready club cricket. I've seen lots of fights. Don't get me wrong. Um, I've seen literal fights three or four times on the pitch. I saw one last year and I was in the midst of a massive controversy mm. with, with a boundary catch uh, when I was umpiring and I gave no, it out. Yeah, I remember you saying, yeah. yeah. So the game is already on a bit of a knife edge anyway. Yeah. Um, I, 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 would, I would hesitate to, uh, to condone bringing this into it as well, I have to say. You play club cricket to have a nice time and... By mancadding, you are decreasing the chance that everyone's going to have a nice time. Yeah. Is, is basically yeah. how I see and, it. And you, and you are asking um, for, for carnage. Yeah, you have to You're appreciate. You're sort of encouraging a sort of anarchy of, on a Saturday afternoon. I, I, I remember we played a game a couple of years ago and this spinner came on and he, he chucked it more nakedly obvious than Charlie Griffiths at his worst, right? You know, the kink was evident to everybody around the ground but we just sort of shrugged our shoulders mm. to it because you're not there to try and uphold every single letter of the laws which apply necessarily to professional mm. cricket but at our level of cricket do we really need to be saying to this player yeah. excuse me that's a no ball you're not going to play today and you're probably therefore not going to play next week there and is, you're probably going to end up totally disaffected with the whole experience. There are so many things in club cricket that you don't follow the letter of the law. For example, like as a bowler running on the pitch, 
Like, you are never, ever going to get thrown out of the attack for running sure. on the pitch. Um, last season, I remember a game where more than half our team were late because of traffic. Uh, you're supposed to forfeit the toss. And I, I was one of the few people there and I just said to the captain, were. and I was like, um, you know, we've got, we've got seven guys who are nearly here. You know, the, the rules say we forfeit the toss. Kind of fair enough. The guy said, happens all the time. Fine. If you're sticking to the letter of the law... You know, we ended up winning that game, and that was very decent. Of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. If, if you've if you've got a gun bowler, you might well hold them back to sort of make the game a bit more. You're not going to have someone mm. who's, who's bowling bounces to some you know 14 year old there at number 11 to make up the numbers, even though that would be the competitively advantageous thing to do. There are there this it already happens that people choose not to do things that would be a competitive advantage to make the game a nicer place at the recreational level. And it is a different thing. I, do, I agree with what Phil said that at some point it will get to the point where it's destigmatized, but that's not there now. But I guess my, my point of view is, is the way it's different to yours is that I think that the, the leaders in club cricket should be working to destigmatize a thing that is within the laws rather than giving concessions to you know the people who might get very angry when something legitimate happens to them, I guess. No, so. I'd agree with that. Ollie Carlson at one in the morning sent this in. Hi, lads. Two from me this week. And as you can see, by the time of me sending this, I've been considering these questions deeply. Number one, who is the best somewhat forgotten white ball pioneer? And why is the answer Alfonso Thomas? Um, good question, that. The first player who came to my head, and I actually can't remember if he was any good, uh, Neil Carter at Warwickshire. Bowler oh, who yeah. opened the batting, pinch hitter. The power play, six machine. The power play uh, merchant yeah, uh, good Warwickshire. Shout, yeah. Um, Shout. Anyone else? Well, uh, my mind immediately went to, as it often does, to, to Doug Marillier, uh, the <laughs> Zimbabwean scoop merchant, uh, who sort of uh, stole an ODI from India by just constantly playing the shot in the early 2000s, I think before Dilshan was doing it. Before, oh, way before. It was like yeah. a decade before Dilshan. When, 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 when Butler was a glint in his mother's eye. <laughs> um, uh, so he came to mind for me. I guess there's a few There's a few that are almost so well known that they're they're not forgotten in a way like Ramesh Kalawithrana is not a great of the game but that's what he's known for is for pioneering that role I guess you might have Deepak Patel uh, and Mark Greatbatch in that New Zealand nice, two side very as, uh, nice Gardner. As, as, as similar but, but I think that they are recognised for their impact on the game whereas I think Marillier especially is, is forgotten for, for pioneering a stroke which is now in, in some ways definitive in the modern game like a uh, batsman will be defined by whether or not they have this shot it sort of changes how bowlers approach the death overs uh, it changed how captains approach field settings. Um, you'll see actually that I think Cumberland Hill was, in, it might have been a piece by Cam Ponsonby actually, that one of the key things that players ask for from analysts is, does this player scoop or not? That's one of the key things in a bowler's head because of how much it affects everything else. And that largely came from him. He was the, the, the first guy to be playing that shot regularly. That's a great answer. It's a very good answer. Very, very briefly, I know. Is Collis King too obvious? No. Fine. Collis King is a sort of, Ahead of his time, six hitter in the middle order for the West Indies. That eighty odd and sixty balls obviously won that seventy nine World Cup final. You see the echo of him in Andre Russell and and many other sort of muscular six hitters to come. Uh, Brian Tonka Taylor. I don't know who that early is. Early captain of of the Essex side. Essex had never won anything. Disaster of a club, really. Down at heel, didn't even have their own ground. Tonka Taylor got them together and said, right, in one day cricket we can start to do something. Tonka Taylor was the wicketkeeper and the captain. This, we're talking early Gillette Cup time, right? Mid-60s, mid to late 60s. Uh, and he prioritised fielding and what, what they lacked with the bat and the ball and certainly what they lacked financially, they could make up for by being the most athletic fielding side 
in the country and they didn't actually win anything until 79 but they were runners up a number of times in the 70s uh, and created a kind of sort of high intensity fielding side before that was even cool Ian Harvey I guess an early sort of uh, slower ball uh, Mm. expert Um, Ollie's second question was snog marry kill mongoose bats the Sangakara James Taylor curvy (laughs) helmet and the no ball free hit klaxon Ollie's taken a drink here isn't he yeah Right, sorry, what was it? Say it again. Mongoose bats, the Sangakara James Taylor curvy helmet, and okay. the no ball free hit klaxon. I'm, I'm killing off the no ball free hit klaxon, personally. Well, I've, I've never wanted to snog a helmet, so I'm going to marry uh, the mongoose bat. You know, I, th- I was always interested in the mongoose bat at the time. I never had the strength to use it, uh, but I liked the idea. Um, of it so I'll marry that uh, I'll kill the helmet and I'll I'll snog a klaxon yeah the the, the mongoose bat played a, a supporting role in the infamous Adrian Shankar story so that's a, that's worth digging out on wisdom.com uh, if you haven't before one thing about the helmet I think Johnny Bairstow once demolished one with his forehead after getting out and I think that <laughs> um, <laughs> that people after that were, were maybe slightly more wary to, to actually use the helmet because they're like hang on if, if this is what Bairstow's head can do to it what can uh, <laughs> Bairstow's head can do many things <laughs> Um, yeah, I was, I was never well not, not a fan of that curvy helmet. And wasn't that the helmet that Stuart Broad was wearing when he got his face smashed in? Yeah, I think it was. It was the curvy was. helmet. So maybe kill that. Anyway, Phoebe asks, would you rather take a Fifer for the ones or score a 50 for the fours? That's directed at you. Yeah, I mean... And you exclusively. And I, I would... Oh, it's a difficult one because... I mean, this is purely theoretical. I've never well. actually scored a 50, so... It has to be that then. You know, I've never actually passed 30. In any form of cricket That's ever. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know you were that so, shit. So for me, proper players, it's the nervous 90s. For me, it's the nervous 20s. I'm like, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm on 26 here. What, what is, what so you what is your do? answer? Um, I think take a five for uh, oh. at the highest level. I think. Really? Yeah. Okay. I guess it's because from you, for you, that would be a show of skill. Like, obviously, I very, very rarely play cricket. And if so if I were to take a five for, the only way it would happen would be, you know, five miss hits just into the deep I wouldn't get much satisfaction from that whereas maybe at, at a certain force club if I played for 10 years I could get a 50 and I would feel like it was based on some sort of skill so that would be that would be my my answer I think I mean runs always runs I, I took a five for, for for Essex when I was about 14 15 no 15 having been injured and Essex under 15 Essex under yeah. 15s yeah sorry <laughs> I took a five for I can't remember who it was against one, and, to, one Tonka Taylor 79 and, and I walked off miserable as sin because it had been two caught at deep deep mid wicket you know one slash to point walked off with five felt low if you get a 50 at any level then you've done some lovely things hmm. Something different to end the show. This week saw Ebony Rainford Brent's ACE programme celebrate its third birthday. They've done some amazing things in a short space of time. Earlier in the week, Phil and I sat down with Ebony to talk through the first three years of ACE and what to expect from the programme going forward. Ebony, great to have you with us. ACE celebrates its third birthday this week. It can't have been easy starting something just as the world went into a pandemic. So how do you reflect on the first three years? Yeah, really exciting. Um, the, the pandemic definitely caused some challenges, but I think as we sit here now looking at our data and we've hit 10,000 young kids, um, most of whom weren't engaged with the game before, um, and that's from our schools, community hubs. And now in that short time, we've got a 21% transition rate into the county system. So we're not only finding kids that 
weren't engaged with the game, they've got talent and they could be the future and, and helping our game grow and diversify. Um, I never thought we would be this far, to be honest. Um, you know, I used to have a lot of free time and that is gone. Um, but I think I'm more proud of seeing what we've been able to achieve, the kids that we've been able to engage and the difference that we've made. So, um, yeah, our report that's coming out and our research is just really, um, yeah, it made us happy that the hard work was worth it. So how does the outreach work? How do you find the youngsters who get involved? Yeah, so twofold. So how we first just kicked off, actually, is we used the media. Thank you to everybody here. And um, we just kind of publicised. I remember the first day we, we were like, are there kids out there, especially from the black community, playing? Where are they? What are they doing? And, and the media helped us like pump out the message of come down. And 100 kids turned up um, and 24 were good enough to go on to our academy. So that's how we first started. Um, but it was Sport England who came to us. They gave us half a million and said, look, I think you need to build it from the grassroots all the way up. And so we had to go and work out which schools to go into. We created community hubs so you can progress from your school through to your community hub and then into the academy. Um, and so a lot of that is using coaches who know these communities inside out. Um, they really know how to speak the language of the kids. You know, a lot of our areas are lower socioeconomic, uh, inner city backgrounds. And so it was important that coaches knew how to engage and work in those sort of schools. Um, looking at our data, 78% of the schools we've gone into were not engaged in cricket. So we had to really enthuse them. We offered this golden ticket like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If you look good, come. And from there, then we sort of develop them and then get the best ones into the academy. So how many of the, the kids that come through wouldn't have uh, otherwise been involved in any pathway setups at yeah, all? Yeah, so in our community hubs, the number is 87% are not playing cricket anywhere else other than our community hubs. 78% of the schools that we've gone into were not engaged in cricket before. So it will be somewhere around 70 to 80% of these kids had no access to cricket prior um, and now, you know, many of them are, you know, in the program for two or three years solid. Um, some of the kids that are older have become coaches and coaching back the younger kids. Like we've created a bit of a, a structure. Um, and we've engaged parents, families, volunteers, the community element and the connection with local people has been really powerful as well. So we really are targeting the group that don't see cricket. Um, and I think what it's allowed us to do is break myths. Before we were told, especially about the black British community, they're into football or they're not interested in cricket or all these different things, which I wasn't sure if it was true or not. And actually what we found is the interest for the sport is there, it's just the opportunity wasn't. And so by putting an opportunity in that area, which was a bit of a void, we've been able to see really quick success. And actually the appetite is massive. Schools are saying they want to become cricket hubs. They want to grow the game. So, so have you found then that overturning that perception that cricket is for a certain demographic and it's not for others have you found that overturning that perception has not actually been as challenging as you might have feared it would have been when you first began it a hundred percent and I think what happens we've been around the game for a long time right and we we know the politics of the game we hear all these narratives the kids are so young they just want to have fun really they just want you to come in if you're a good coach if you can help them whack the ball chuck the ball do everything they care about none of the above you know we we look at the game in such a adult way I think rather than let's just get it back to the simplicity and so our coaches are very good at going in and saying we're just doing something fun today have you ever chucked a ball like this have you ever whacked a ball like this? they don't care as long as you're fun and I think that is important um, one thing the coaches have said is that the kids are so ingrained in football that we need to get in young because because if they're already talented, they're already on that path. So you're trying to get 
someone who at the age of 10 or 11 could be a great cricketer, but they might already be in a pathway for Arsenal, Chelsea or one of the others. So if we want the best ones, we have to get in very early to make sure that we're one of their choice sports. But in terms of just enthusing, the kids absolutely love cricket. And I think things like the 100 has helped because kids have seen that. I think they see that new form of cricket that's been a bit more accessible to them. And that definitely is noticeable that them being able to see it on terrestrial TV or on YouTube or these different clips has made a difference. But that narrative, I think, completely has blown out the water. I, I think if we invest, we will see in five to ten years' time more success. You mentioned the coaches a few times mm. and part of what you, you you say throughout is that you're doing things slightly differently. So mm. with the coaching, how do you kind of get everyone who's part of ACE to kind of be singing off the same hymn sheet? Yeah, well, I think the number one thing is most of the coaches have walked the pathway. So you take me, for example, I come from inner city. Um, you know, I know what state life can be like. I know what postcode wars mean. I know what, you know, lots of issues that are in our society. Our director of cricket, Chevy Green, the same. He's worked on women and girls, disability, but also comes from that background. All of our coaches were selected because they have a deep knowledge of inner city communities. And that's not just in London. You go to, we've gone up to Sheffield now, Nottingham, Manchester, and we spent a long time in recruiting, making sure that we were confident they spoke the language. So then developing the programs isn't hard because you're using knowledge of being from that community you have networks in that community um, and so then the team come up with creative ideas all the time and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not a great boss because I don't offer too much like you must do this or that I'm like just go and solve the problem I just want kids having fun and we want to retain them so then they can get creative in the way they deliver um, you know I think also different areas are different so we found for example London um, was different to Birmingham. We had to put in a bit more effort in Birmingham to get that engagement initially. But once you got the ball rolling, then everyone got excited. So um, the coaches are vital. I think without them knowing that, and also the other thing I'd add about the coaches, um, sometimes in cricket, I find coaches either become performance, so ex-player goes straight into a coaching a second team, or you coach community, but it's very rare you coach across both. So our coaches are not only skilled in working with community, they've also done a bit of performance junior pathways and stuff like that. So they're able to spot talent, they're able to develop talent, but they're also able to engage. And that's really quite a, a unique skill set um, that, that a lot of our team have. I, I remember when this all began, and in fact, it wasn't when, when it began, it was when you and Chris Grant, who's a you know, big cheese at Sport England, you were announcing that the initiative had acquired charitable status and therefore some some support financially from Sport England. And I remember asking you at that press conference why somebody else hadn't done it or rather why a, a, I more, remember you a more established organisation hadn't already begun to try and overturn the complacency of the past. And you were being very brilliant, of course you were, but for a moment you just... It was like you just talked <laughs> like, to me. Phil, don't ask me that question. And you just said, I just got fed up of waiting. Yeah. And I remember that line. Um, you've been around cricket as a player and as an administrator and as a commentator and so on and so on. You've, you've, you've worn all those hats over, what, 15 years now at least. Is it a more enlightened game now, do you think? Or, or are these initiatives such as ACE still the exceptions that prove the rule or are they indicative of something a more broader more expansive and a more enlightened game than than, than it was say a few years ago when you were first involved uh, three years ago i was if i was honest with you i was hope 
less. I, I didn't actually, I wasn't con- convinced our game really was ready to be inclusive. But I think this journey with ACE, and we're working with counties, we've been working with ECBs, but all these guys, and I think what happened, let's be honest, with Black Lives Matter, I think was a bit of a shake-up. Azim Rafiq was a shake-up. There's been some shake-ups. There is a real readiness um, and awareness. I don't think we know the answers yet. Mm. I think that's one yeah. thing. I think we've got to find out the answers. Yeah. But I think everybody's ready to find out the answers now. And that, therefore, leaves you hopeful because you're like, okay, well... Let's all just put our hats together. And that's not just us, all the other cricket charities, the count, everyone can put their hats together. And I don't even know that's expression, but you get what I'm saying and work it out. So what I would say is we are ready to go on that mission. I heard Richard Thompson say cricket could become the most inclusive sport. We could do that. Um, and I think if we work together collectively, we could achieve that five to 10 years time. And I don't think three years ago before kind of a few things that happened in the game, we were ready to take that journey, but I do believe we are now. Could I also just ask you briefly about some of the individuals that have come through through the, the scheme and now are involved with the Surrey Academy? You said 80 something percent had no experience of cricket at all. So you're seeing like incredible athletic mm. advancements in a very short space yeah. of time, right? It's interesting what, so, about what it says about the game itself, right? Well, there's a mixture of things. So some of our talent, for example, existed in clubs that weren't proper affiliated clubs. So they kind of missed out on the whole joy of being in a structured club, which gets this and those leagues and stuff. They were just talent that was out there playing. But there's examples like in Bristol, for example, Theo's coming tonight, he'll tell you. There's a kid called Parrish. He chased down, I think he was about age 10 or 11, chased down in a car park. I think he was on his way to football or something like that. Said, do you fancy cricket? I think the kid was like, well, I'm going football, whatever. But he convinced him. And now he's one of these, there was nine kids just recently picked up into the Gloucestershire, across the whole Southwest Gloucestershire, Somerset um, and Wiltshire. Um, most of them went into Gloucestershire. And he's one of those kids that he's wasn't playing cricket 18 months ago. Wow. So, and he's already in the county setup. Yeah, and he's in the county setup. And so I think there's a few things. One is raw talent is just unbelievable. And I don't think cricket does a great job of... Yeah searching for talent in different places uh, I don't think we're aggressive football and other sports are aggressive they're hunting talent from the minute they're out ready to go and born um, we kind of just go to the same pots and, and places and I think what some of our stories will show you and, and you know tonight we'll have because we're launching our impact here at the Oval um, you'll hear stories along those lines. So I think there's two sides. The other thing I would say is um, we one area that we really want to improve, we don't think our community hubs will, are, are transitioning talent as quickly as we'd like because you've got mixed abilities. It's really hard to push the best out of kids. And so we're actually going to start trialing more aggressive routes because now we've seen roots from some kids who'd played, but they're playing in their back garden, but their granddad happened to be able to teach them very well. Mm-hmm through to someone who'd never played before cricket but was sporty we're seeing all these different ways and we're starting to think we think there's better ways that we could turn our 21 percent transition rate for our academy into 30 40 50 percent and if most of those kids we start to get to are from working class backgrounds diverse backgrounds kids that normally wouldn't get it then how good is that going to be for our game so the good news is we believe that it's possible what we realize we actually want to change some things in our program and be more aggressive. And when we might end up being like other sports, which really go out there and find talent. And you mentioned schools. You know, cricket in state schools is a is a miserable old subject that has been covered for many, many years. But the slow death of cricket in state schools is a is a scandal. Um, 
you're getting some positive stuff back from local schools, mm-hmm. right? Wanting to get involved in the, in the scheme. We've got schools. We've got a, a school coming down tonight who they're in South Norwood. They have, you know, it's not something that they weren't playing cricket before ACE and they now want to become like a cricket academy. Right. They want to take cricket from every single age group up. And why, why, why would they? Because they said they've seen the impact of what cricket is offered. And I think cricket offers a different skill set, right? If, if you play certain sports, you maybe have to be athletic in a certain way, whereas you could be a spin bowler or you could be more mathematical. And, you know, so the kid, a very different range of kids can get access to cricket and, and shine, I think. So they've decided that cricket is something they really want to explore. And I, I think we should be really creative. Um, I grew up in an inner city. I started playing cricket on concrete. But... I actually think you look at certain footballers who grew up in inner city areas and they learn a style of play because of the type of surface they played on. Or um, you look at, there's so many stories, there's actually a great book which goes into um, how talent athletes are made. And actually having constraints makes you better. So I think, right, if you grew up in an inner city, down the line, I'd love to say people could see that that kid grew up playing cricket in a cage because of the way they use their wrist or because of the way they go about their game. So I actually... When looking at the facilities that we've been working with, yes, there is a massive need to invest, but that is not the limit, if I'm being brutally honest. The limit is just not putting something in the first place. Um, we can work in Norton parks and non-turf pitches. We can create, you know, we can make things, we can make pitches out of cones or whatever. I don't worry about that. What I think is without being in there in the first place and having the ambition to say, these kids can thrive at cricket. Without that first bit, then the rest doesn't happen. So yes, we need to invest in inner city. It is a sad state of what's happened in state schools, but there are schools that really love cricket or really can see what cricket can do for their kids. Um, And if the first three years have surpassed expectations, Mm. what do you hope for the next three years? (sighs) That's a really good question. Um, There's a lot of things. In my dream world, and we had this with our trustees meeting, in five years, Ace wouldn't, exist in its current format delivering its current needs because the game would have got so good at getting into these areas that it would become almost absorbed and we'd have find new areas to to deal with so there's a part of a dream that is the game accelerates so quickly around inclusion and how we engage um and we help that journey but actually we cease to need to exist in that space because we've done our job Um, The other thing is we've been approached by other sports um, that struggle with inclusion, diversity to to look at how we could use our models and how we can engage other kids. And I think that is something that we would explore doing as well. We never want to take too far away from cricket, which is my my number one love. But equally, I appreciate there are other sports that um, we could use to do it. But I think also let's be brutally selfish. And I know I have this argument all the time. Are we caring about the community? Are we caring about professional players? But you, I want to see, see someone go out there I and see, open the bowling in the ashes. I want to see someone opening the bowling in the ashes. Of course um, you do. You know, Davina Perrin, who's someone who's ace elite. So we didn't make her as a cricketer, but we support her a lot with mentoring. I spoke to her in South Africa the other day. She's an England under 19 cricketer. But she is, I remember meeting her at 12 and just going, oh my God, like, oh my God, you were 10 times better. So I'm not going to lie. Let's be honest. You, you would love to see it. Wouldn't you imagine oh, from the day you asking that question to going, oh my God, that kid. And it could be the kid that got chased down in a car park who's now representing a county or playing for England. So I'm not going to lie. Five year, in the next five years, I want, we need a contract. I would love a contract. 
Well, the first three years have sounds like it's gone pretty well so far. Um, Ebony, it's been great to have you on the show and best of luck for the next three years. Thank you so much. Cheers. That is all we have time for on today's show. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week where we will be previewing the Women's T20 World Cup, reviewing the England South Africa ODI series and actually looking ahead to that India-Australia test series as well. Podcast Network.